take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning verse 22 this morning. You know, Romans is a powerful, powerful letter in the New Testament. Paul's writing to this group of believers in a very pagan world, in a very unchristian world and place. And, and he's writing to them saying, listen, here is how you evaluate the way things are, and here's what things are going to be. And it's very important you see those two in, in, in connection with one another. The passage we're going to look at this morning in Romans chapter 8 is really talking about that which is yet to come and the glory of looking forward to it. But if you remember back in Romans chapter 1, now that may seem like a long time ago, it probably seems like three years or so ago since we were in Romans chapter 1, right? It's probably because about three years or so ago that we were in Romans chapter 1. But if you remember Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talked about what is happening in our culture, what is happening in the world. Now he was writing this almost 2,000 years ago, and it was just as true then as it is today, but it seems to be a whole lot more visible even today. I remember back in chapter 1 in these verses, you don't have to turn there with me, but you can listen to it. In chapter 1, verses uh, 21 uh, through 25, Paul says this, For although they knew God, and they knew God was there because of the creation, because all the heavens are declaring the glory of God, they knew that there was a God. But even though they knew that, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And in becoming fools, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And this is the key, because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie. It's important to understand. They exchanged the truth of God and the truth about God and the truth of who God is. They have exchanged it, those who are the secularists, if you want to call them that, have exchanged the truth of God and the truth about God for the lie, the lie of Satan, the lie of the world, the lie that claims what it cannot truly righteously claim. And this is what happens when they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and then they worship and they serve the creature rather than the Creator. You may have seen this this past week. I don't know if you did or not, but I want to show you a picture. There's a picture up there. I hope you can see that clearly. This is a chapel service in, uh, at a, a place called Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Now, I want to tell you, Union Theological Seminary, I don't usually use uh, object lessons, but here we have an object here today. Union Seminary in New York City, I have a hard time calling it Union, I have a hard time calling it Theological, and I have a hard time calling it a seminary, but that's what they claim for themselves. 
But years ago, they abandoned the truth about God and the truth of God for a lie. They abandoned any authority of Scripture. They abandoned anything about God being holy, as we've sung about this morning, and righteous and worthy of worship and worthy of praise. They abandoned all that, and they began to believe the lie that man is everything there is. And the creation, the earth, is all there is. Now, if you saw this, you know what they're doing in chapel service at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. They are confessing to the plants. Now, we can snicker at that and we can laugh at that. And quite honestly, both of those are appropriate responses to that. They really are. But they're confessing their their mistreatment of plants to the plants and praying that the plants will continue to sustain our life on this earth. Plants do give us something very important. They give us oxygen that we breathe. But the plants give us oxygen because the creator of the plants created them to take in carbon dioxide and to give off oxygen. And as we give off carbon dioxide, we take in oxygen. And there's that beautiful symmetry that goes forth where God has provided for us to be able to live. But we don't... These are artificial, though, aren't they? I think. I don't guess it would help. Uh, should have had Rose put some real plants in here today. But, but we don't worship to them, and we don't bow down to them, and we don't confess to them. But the world that has abandoned the truth of God does exactly that. I consider myself a conservationist. I believe we ought to take care of the creation. I think we ought to, we ought to conserve. We ought to be good stewards of what God has given us. I do not consider myself an environmentalist. Uh, and yet, environmentalism is the, the religion of the age. It's the religion of the secularists, you know, that, that we've, got to, we've got to do away with all carbon usage. We've got to do away with, their, uh, we've got to do away with cows and eating beef and all sorts of things. You'll, you'll hear that a lot in the next 12 months or so. And, and, and while I believe we ought to be conservationists, we ought to care for what God has given us, I don't see this as all that there is, and neither did the Apostle Paul. And so that brings us to chapter 8, verses 22 through 25 that we're going to look at this morning. Because Paul is talking about here the exact same thing that Pastor Ricky read about in the hearing of the word and that Daniel read us as we worship together in that song out of Revelation 21 and 22. The, the very great truth that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That God is going to recreate everything that they is, there is. Yes, everything there is is degenerating and deteriorating, and literally falling apart right before our very eyes. But God Almighty, who in the first creation created everything good and perfect in the beginning, when He created the heavens and the earth, and created all the animals, and created all the plants, and created man and woman in His own image, when, when that God is ready in the right time, He's going to create all new heavens and earth. They're going to be created completely new. And that's what Paul is wanting the Roman Christians to focus on, In this passage, hear what Paul writes, beginning in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now even. We we dealt with that last week, verses 18 through 22. And not only the creation, not only the plants and the animals and the seas and and the skies, not, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait in hope, in, the, in this hope we were saved. Excuse me. 
as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. I've got to get a bigger print Bible. I've got to see that right now. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says, everything that we see around us is not as it's supposed to be. Everything we see around us is not as God intended in the original creation. And it all broke down many thousands of years ago when Adam and Eve in the garden chose to disobey God, chose to believe what? The lie. The same lie that's being told to us today is the same lie that was told Adam and Eve in the garden. If you will just do thus and such, you will be like God. You can be a God in your own right. You can be a God in your own strength. You can be the, the master of your own universe. You can rule over everything if you'll just do what I say. And they fell for it. And at that moment, death entered into the world, and death and sickness and deterioration, and everything began to happen after that. But what Paul wants us to see in this passage is that this life is not really life. Did you hear that? This life is not really life. Our present existence is really a living death because we're moving toward it. We are on our way to real life. I, I, I love what my grandmother Haynes used to say. She lived to be 97 years old, and for the last 20 years of her life, anytime she would hear of a friend dying, she would always say, she'd look at us and say, well, I hate to hear that, but you know, that's a debt we've all got to pay. And she was right. Short of the Lord coming again in the second coming before that time, that's something we all face. We are living in the existence of a living death. And, and in our world, non-Christians, and sadly some even church-going Christians, whose hearts are so captivated by the rewards of this life, so captivated what they can accumulate, what they can gather, and what they can get in this life, is that's their only focus. That's all they think about. This idea of a new heaven and a new earth, this idea of the coming of the Lord Jesus, this idea of something being better than all around us, they can't comprehend that. They look around and they say, well, how can it get any better than this? I've got plenty of food to eat, I've got, I've got nice cars to drive, I live in a nice house, I have air conditioning, I'm comfortable, I'll never get hot uh, unless I go outside and I get outside as little as possible. I get back in my air-conditioned car and I'm comfortable, I'm settled, I'm secure. How can it get any better than this? And Paul is basically saying here, if this is the best you've got and this is the best you're hoping for, then you are of all men or women to be pitied. Because there is much more to come. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul highlights basically four different aspects, or five different aspects, of this, what one commentator called, and I love this, John Stott called this the, the half-saved condition in which we live in. I never thought about that until several years ago when I was reading Stott, and he said, you know, we live in a half-saved condition. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I think if you are in Christ, you are secure, and you are eternally secure, and you are completely saved. If you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you, you, will, you will never be 
any less saved at one level than you are right now, spiritually speaking. But there is yet coming a day where we'll not only be saved from in spiritual sense for all of eternity, but there will be a recreation of this body. And man, am I looking forward to that. In this life, I have to worry about dieting, to worry about exercise, to worry about you know, what my blood counts are, and I have to worry about aches and pains and torn rotator cuffs and colonoscopy. I mean, you can go on and on about things you have to worry about in this life. But in that new creation, I won't worry about any of that. The body will be created perfectly in the image of the resurrected, glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says. He says five things here that are important. First, he says, I want you to understand in verse 23, we know that the whole creation has grown in together with the pains of death till now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's an interesting thing he says there. We who are in Christ, we who are living in this world today, right now, who are in Christ, we have the first fruits of of the Spirit. Now, when Paul uses that term first fruits, he's talking about an agricultural type terminology. The first fruits were those fruits that were harvested at the very beginning of the harvest season. They were the first things to come in. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, when the harvest was brought in and the crops were, were harvested, God told his people, You are to give out of the first fruits to me. I'm to get from the first fruits, from the very first thing. Now, the first fruits are that first things that come in, but the first fruits are also a promise of the full harvest. So we who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our life, giving us a taste of heaven, giving us a taste of what it means to walk with Christ and walk with the Lord, even on this earth. But yet, that first fruits, that taste of this Holy Spirit indwelled life is but a promise, it is but a guarantee that there's a full harvest yet to come. And Paul is saying here, even we who have the first fruits, even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly and wait for our adoption as sons. We have the first fruits. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14, Paul replaces there the agricultural metaphor with, with a metaphor out of, out of commerce, a commercial metaphor. And there he says that the, the gift of the Holy Spirit in our life, the Arbogon, is the first installment, the first deposit. It's a down payment, if you will, on that which is guaranteed when the purchase is completed. So there he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is... Our guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul says, I want you to understand this. The first fruits are yours because you have the Holy Spirit. The down payment has been made in your life because you have the Holy Spirit. But we hope and we pray and we know from God's Word that this is not all that there is to it. Because here we still struggle. Here we still have pain. Here we still think, man, there's got to be something better than this. Even if we're sitting on hordes of land and hordes of, 
of possessions and money in the bank. There's got to be something more. And there is. And the believer knows it and knows the sweetness of the first fruits and knows the sweetness of the down payment, but they long for the full inheritance. They long for the full harvest to come. Now, I recognize some people will look at that and say, well, your faith is just a pie in the sky by and by type of faith. How would you answer somebody that said that to you? You're talking about that which is yet to come, the full harvest, the full inheritance. Well, your, your faith is just a pie in the sky by and by. How would you answer that? Here's how I would answer it. Yes, you finally understand what I'm trying to say. It is something that we cannot experience in this world. It is something that is going to be more glorious than anything we can imagine. Revelation 21, Revelation 22, both of those speak to the glorious recreation of all that there is, recreated in the image of what it once was. And although we have, I recognize that, that Paul says here, we long, we, we, we long for our adoption, we groan for our adoption as the sons redemption of our bodies, we've not yet received our final adoption. I know that in verse 15, Paul made it very clear, for if you, you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I realize Paul says we have been adopted, and yet he also says, and we shall be adopted. Does that confuse you? It really shouldn't. It really shouldn't. Because there is that sense in which we have been saved, but there is that sense in which we yet shall be saved. There's that sense in which we have been adopted. There's that sense in which we are now being adopted. And there's that sense in which we will one day fully be adopted, knowing the fullness of His glory, the fullness of His inheritance, the fullness of the harvest. When we see Him, Face to face. Paul says, we have the first fruits. But he also says, I kind of got ahead of myself a little bit, but that's all right. I do that regularly. He said, secondly, that we groan inwardly. Second part of verse 23. There is that sort of a, a flip-flopping here that, that Paul uses. That, that he says, uh, we, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the presence of the Spirit and yet we still groan. But again, that should not surprise us. If we have tasted the goodness of the Lord, if we have tasted what He has done in our lives, if we have tasted His presence in our lives, it ought to just give us, it ought to give us a, a desire and a passion and a hope for so much more. It ought to, it ought to whet our appetite. You know, you, you go to a restaurant today and they come out and they take your drink order and then they usually ask you the question, would you like an appetizer? You know, I still don't understand that because when I go there, I'm hungry. I don't need anything to get my appetite going. Uh, but, but would you like an appetizer? And you either yes or no or whatever. And the idea is that appetizer just gives you a little taste, just kind of holds you over until... What is yet to come gets there to your table, be it a steak or fish or whatever you order, or vegetable plate, whatever it is, you're waiting for it. But this appetizer will give you just a little taste of what's really yet to come. 
Paul is saying here, we have the first fruits as our appetizer. And yet, because we taste that, because we know that, we groan for more. We groan for the fulfillment. So really, the, the most urgent question in our lives is not, what do we have? What do we have of this world's goods and, and this world's honors and this world's benefits? The, question is, the, the important question is really not, how much can we accumulate? I remember the old poster that was big when I was in college, you know, and I saw it all over the University of Alabama campus when I was a freshman in college. Had this big sign, had all these material things on it. I think a car uh, dealership, actually even, maybe it was Maserati, took it as an advertising campaign and said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Remember that? Yeah, he who dies with the most toys wins. That is the ultimate of secularist thinking. He who dies with the most wins? Only if the most is that which God has promised. It's just the most of what we have here. News for you. He can't take it with you. Somebody else may enjoy it. Somebody else may benefit from it. But you won't. If that's all you got. So the question really is, and I think it's the question that the Holy Spirit really searches our heart with if the Holy Spirit dwells within us, is this. What would you rather have? What is the most important thing in your life? Is it the, the pleasures and the honors and the glories of this world? Or is it that which is yet awaiting you in a new creation, a new created heaven, and a new created earth, where a new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, and we reign with our Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it what I can get now? Pseudo-Christianity never stops asking, what can I get to be comfortable and happy in this life? Pseudo-Christianity never thinks about, where can I go and invest my life for the cause of the gospel? Pseudo-Christianity says, I want to come to church on Sunday, and I want to be comfortable in what I'm doing, and I want to go out and enjoy what I possess, so the next Sunday I can come back and sing all the beautiful songs, and hear all the beautiful scripture read, just to go back out and enjoy the world. Hey, that's a, that's a temptation I face, folks. I'm not here saying, oh, you need to be as good as me. Not at all. But it's a struggle that pseudo-Christianity says, I, I just want what the world has. I want a little taste of Jesus. I want a little taste of that down payment, but I'm not really sure I want what the down payment is guaranteeing. And the truth of the matter is, you and I have to make up our minds. What is important? What are we pursuing? What really matters? We will either keep our attention totally focused toward this world with an occasional glance up to God, especially when we encounter tough times and we realize all that we've got here when there's real problems in life. All of this can't solve that. And so we're focusing on this sometimes. And we say, but God, I need your help right now. And we go right back to where we were. It's the old thing I talked about a thousand times in the 
13 years we've been at Grace Baptist Church, and that is, what is your focus? What is your gaze? Where is your gaze? Do you gaze upon the things of this world and your circumstances and occasionally glance to God? Or do you gaze upon God and glory in Him and worship Him and occasionally look at the circumstances? But by gazing on Him, recognizing He's in control of all things, and those circumstances are under His control, and He will be the one who gives you the greatest hope, the only hope in the midst of all that. The groaning of Christians is not just grief over things as they are. The groaning is that expectant grief. That things are not as they ought to be, but praise God, I'm anticipating, I'm expecting, I'm waiting on that which is yet to come. And one reason for our groaning and our, is our physical frailty and our mortality. Third thing he says, I've got to get moving here. He says, not only do we have the first fruits, not only are we groaning, but we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. In this section of chapter 8, Paul is explaining really how big God's promises are that we're to depend upon. In Romans 8, 18 through 25, he's not talking about heaven. Did you notice that? Paul does not mention heaven one single time. Now, now he does mention a new creation. In verses 19, 20, 21, and 22, the Apostle Paul says, listen, there is a new creation coming, and we long for that, and we wait for that. Because that is the essence of God's promise. And we wait. Paul's speaking here of when our bodies and our souls, our bodies and our spirits are fully reunited. We know we've already been adopted by God. We already know this. The Spirit assures us that seal, that promise, that down payment that we are His children. But here Paul's talking about something that will happen in the future. If you die in Christ, as, as many of our friends have, they died in Christ and immediately, according to the promises of Scripture, their spirit was in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross. You had two thieves there beside Jesus. One mocking, one repenting. And Jesus looked at one and said, Today, not next month, not next year, not at the end of time, but today you will be with me in paradise. Paul said to the Corinthian Christians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, but we would rather be away from this body and at home with the Lord. So Paul is talking about there to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He said that to the Another point in the Corinthian letters. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That, that happens. But at the funeral, the body is placed in the ground. And, and the body, the shell, the house that the person lived in is there in the ground, awaiting 
the day of resurrection. Awaiting that glorious day when Christ returns to redeem his people and our bodies and our souls are reunited in all the glory of what he has done. Fourthly, Paul says, I want you to see this in the first part of verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Notice there, were saved. There's the aorist tense in the Greek, or we would call it in the English, the past tense, the completed past tense. It bears witness to our decisive past liberation from the guilt and the bondage of our sins and from the judgment of God upon us that it will be cast out over all the world one day. Paul says it's in this hope. It is in this hope that we were saved. And hope that is seen is not hope, but he who hopes, but for we hope, for what? For who hopes for what he sees? We hope for that which we do not see. Blessed hope. It's been phrased. The blessed hope of his return. The blessed hope of our eternity with him in a new heaven and a new earth. In all his glory. Paul says, I want you to understand something here. That's where you are to live. That's where I am to live. In an already, but not yet. In a yes, it's here. And a yes, it's yet to come. Paul says it's hope. We walk by faith, not by sight. Somebody says, well, I, I, I don't think I can have that kind of faith. Well, you can't. The Holy Spirit doesn't open your eyes to see it. But when you get into His Word and you see His Word to be true and the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind to understand what God is saying, that my promises are yes and yes, my promises are true and true, and I will not turn away from them. You see the glory, the glory of Christ and the glory of what is yet to come. And then Paul closes this with the fifth thing. It's not only hope that we have, but it's waiting patiently for the fulfillment. He says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You can't wait for it with patience if you expect the reward to be the things of this world. You'll always grumble. You'll always say, God, I don't have what I deserve. I don't have what so-and-so has. I don't, I don't have enough comforts. I don't have enough wealth. I don't have enough this or that or whatever. You'll always grumble if you think that what God owes you is stuff here on this earth. The truth is, He promises us something far greater, for we are confident in God's promises that the first fruits will be followed by the harvest, will be, that bondage will be followed by absolute freedom, that decay, by, decay will follow, be followed by incorruption just like labor pains, gives birth to a brand new life. I could talk about my new grandchild here. Because my daughter-in-law went through some pain. But oh, the glory of what is there now is indescribable. We who are in Christ will suffer through birth pains in this world but yet 
we will one day see the glory of Christ. I like how one of my favorite pastoral theologians put it, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in the early and mid-1900s. He said, hope is the measure of true Christianity, which is through and through otherworldly. You got that? It is looking for a pie in the sky by and by. It is otherworldly. Hope is otherworldly. He says, says that's the measure of true Christianity. Pseudo or false Christianity always looks chiefly at this world. Popular Christianity is entirely this worldly. They, they'll play to, pray to plants. They'll confess to plants. It is not interested in the other world. But true Christianity has its eye mainly on the world which is to come. Is not primarily concerned or even, uh, even with deliverance from hell and punishment and all the things that trouble us and weary us. That really belongs to the past. True Christianity sets its affection on the things which are above, not on the things which are on earth, the Apostle Paul to the Colossian Christians. It is that which says, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says, this is his promise. Revelation 21, Revelation 22, John sees that vision of a new heaven and a new earth, and he says, I wait upon that. He hears the Lord Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I created it at the beginning and I will recreate it at the end. And you who are in me, you who have the first fruits of the Spirit, you should look for that, long for that, patiently wait on that and live with an otherworldly mindset to make difference through the missions and evangelism and the gospel in this world. Because you see, unless you have your mind set on things above, you'll never be any good for this world. You'll be just like it. So the old statement, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good, is absolutely ridiculous. It's only when you're heavenly minded that there is any way to be earthly good. Pray with me.